The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. prepared for worshiping the Lord this morning. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us to worship the Lord, and if you're new to our church family, we'd love for you to take the card in front of you in the chair and just fill it in. It's a welcome card. You can let us know of your visit. Also, if there's any way we can pray for you or just praise God together with you, we'd love to do that. We'd also encourage you to download our church app because everything you kind of need to know about what's happening in the church, you can easily find there. And one of the things you'd see is that next Sunday, we're going to have our members meeting. And that means after the service, if you just uh, choose to stay, we're going to have a sub-lunch. And then we have our members meeting. Uh, We're looking forward to welcoming five people into our church family membership. We have voting for a board member position and a deacon member position. And then we're also going to be discussing the budget for 2023. So it's a very important meeting, and we'd ask that you uh, come prepared to stay for that after the church service. Also want to let you know of some giving opportunities over the Christmas season. One is tied with our, one is tied with our food bank. Um, we're blessed that each month we serve uh, 60 families through Winnipeg Harvest. So every other week we have the food bank here and 30 families come at a time. Families can come once a month to Winnipeg Harvest. So for them, it, it's food, but it doesn't last for a whole month. And what we try to do is supplement that as a church. So throughout the year, you'll see the invitation to, to give to our food bank so that we can make an extra bag for them. And at Christmas, we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to give each family a hamper so that they know they have food for Christmas? And so what we're going to ask of you is, if you want to go to the Resource Center, last week this was in your bulletin. It's a list of supplies that we could put into a hamper that's worth about $50. And so if you're willing to buy the hamper and bring it to church next Sunday, that would be great because we have the first group on December the 8th coming to receive the food. And uh, if you'd prefer to uh, give money to this instead, I'll tell you about how you can do that right away. But going and shopping with your family and buying this and just praying for the people who receive it would be wonderful. The other giving opportunity is our traditional Christmas offering, and that's going to run, we're going to run it from December the 11th to December 20th. And uh, we have three main partners that we want to support during this time. Far Corners Ministry, who are partners in Northeast India, um, Canadian Baptist Ministries, which is in Bolivia, and then we're going to be also supporting Angel Tree Christmas, which provides gifts to inmates, uh, children that are in prison. So they talk with inmates, their children, they can write a note to them, and we bring the gift to their house. They bring the gift to their house and say, this is from your mom, this is from your dad. So our goal is to raise $3,750 and share that equally among those three ministries. So this next part is how it ties to the food hampers. If you give to that, whatever goes above $3,750 will go to help make sure that we have enough money to do those 60 food hampers. So please consider uh, giving generously to that this year. And also don't let that take away from your, your normal giving, please. 
Uh, so now let's get on to some other Christmas things that are exciting coming up. First of all, uh, mark on your calendars, I'm sure you already have, December 24th, what a special day. Come here for 5 o'clock. Uh, the service will be streaming, but we want to see you here. And uh, the topic is Behold Our King. And one of the things I'd ask you to do in preparation of that day is many of you have taken the Journal of Matthew. I just really encourage you between now and then, take time to read through Matthew once to get ready to, about hearing more clearly the message of our King. There's nothing like meeting him in scripture. And then uh, on Christmas Day, we're gonna have a service here at 10.30. It won't be streamed, but the audio message will be available afterwards. Uh, Sheila and the staff from our children's ministry have been preparing a gingerbread bash, and uh, we have 15 families signed up already. We'd love for you to come. If you, if you decide to, please sign up by Tuesday so they can buy the supplies. This is next Saturday. It starts at 6 o'clock, goes till 7, and then it leads right into our variety night. And that's what we're really looking forward to, having a dessert night with you, and also to see your talents, your skills, that you'd let Kevin know what you'd like to bring to that evening. And so um, we thought we'd encourage you to get the juices flowing by just doing a little staff number this morning. So here we go. Jesus. 
Jesus is now the star divine. Brighter and brighter he will shine. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on. Shine on. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine upon us until the Star of Bethlehem, shine on, shine on. Amen. Amen. You guys, uh, if you want to sing with us on uh, or on on Saturday night at the Variety Night or do a skit or a poem like Doug said, please, please let me know. Uh, we'd love to, love to add you to the program. Um, also, as Doug said, uh, next Sunday we're having that membership meeting after church, and when we're doing that, we're voting in some new members. And uh, part of the process of that is we have the joy of, uh, in one way or another, hearing, hearing how God has been working in the lives of people who are coming into our church family. And this morning we have the privilege of hearing from Paul and Corrine Hildebrandt. They're going to be sharing their faith stories today, so let's, let's welcome them here. in order to get on staff. Is this how it works? <laughs> this comes up. Yep. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm the Corrine of the Paul and Corrine, just so you know. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the path I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope for a future. I started out my life in London, Ontario. I accepted the Lord as my savior when I was 10 years old and was baptized very shortly after that. I have to confess to you that I did not have a very happy childhood. My home seemed just so busy all the time with conflict. But I was fortunate that I had very good grandparents and when I was at their house, I felt very safe and happy. I started to take voice lessons when I was in grade eight. My teacher, my music teacher, was also the worship pastor at our church. I think he saw things in my family that as a child, I didn't even realize were there myself. He started to talk to me about this place he knew where I could go away to school and I could take music at the same time. So, after some people gave me some money from the church, I got on a bus after grade nine and I drove out on the Greyhound to Briarcrest Schools, which is in Saskatchewan. I got there at midnight <laughs> and it was pretty cool and it was dark 
And I had this man meet me. Turned out he was the principal of the high school, a very quiet man. And he walked me up the, to the dorm and told me to go inside and look for my name on a door. Just walk up and down the halls, he said, until you find your name. And that will be your home for the year. I remember vividly watching the girls in the dorm be homesick, some of them even physically homesick. I just couldn't understand what on earth they were missing. They did everything that, to me, was so wonderful. I got fed three times a day. Uh, I got to go to school. Um, they had great choirs. And uh, the chapel music was just wonderful. The whole place just thrilled me to death. And I was only in grade 10. By the time I was in grade 12, I'd turned into a prairie chicken. I loved the flat land. I loved the clear air, the open space, the heat without humidity. I loved the people that worked at the school. I remember the cooks in the dining hall. They were just the most wonderful ladies. And they taught me so many things, and they showed me kindness. They also showed me how to make porridge in a vat for 600 people. Um, by, the, by grade 12, I was staying there year-round. The other kids would go home for holidays, and uh, I just stayed there. I just, I just loved the place. And by then, I have to say in grade 12, I'd met a boy. <laughs> I was seeing that my hope and my future that was promised to me in Jeremiah was actually coming to fruition. We got married at Cairnport, and then we moved to Regina so that Paul could go to university after his Bible school. We worked for years at Faith Baptist Church in Regina. We contributed a lot in the music, and we also ran a youth program, and then a college and career program. That was before Rudy, they ever thought of youth pastors. We're still friends with a lot of those people today, but they were growing years for us, and we were learning and prospering about and learning about faith, and we were growing confident in our faith. By then, we had two little kids. Things were looking pretty good. Tragedy struck when Paul's brother and sister were killed in a car accident. They left three boys on this earth. That was really uh, a difficult time. Two of the boys were older, but the youngest one was about the age of our kids. The next few years we found to be pretty busy. Um, this young boy needed a mom, and I took on that role. Um, I just really felt that I needed to see him through his heartache, and he felt so alone. These were dark times for me, but we did realize the sustaining grace of God that carried us through. And you know, that's the miracle right there. God doesn't remove pain, and he doesn't take away your loss, but he sees you through it, and he holds you up. That boy now is a grown, a grown man, and uh, 
we love him like our own, and we're grandparents to his kids. So looking back on all my years, what do I see? I see a young girl that got on a bus and drove into another life. I became part of a family who welcomed me and cared for me. We've taken their examples from their home and have put them into our home because the experience there was so different than what I ever had as a child. I had a pretty good career when I was working, but I think helping to raise our nephew, that was probably my highest calling. I have experienced God's faithfulness. I had an unsettled childhood, and then I started and went away to Cairnport, and I found that that molded me and shaped me and set me on a new path of hope through Jesus Christ. You know, this church, for membership, they require us to write all this stuff out. And then we have to tell you guys about it. It's actually a brilliant plan. It made me look back over my life and pick out the things I wanted to share with you today, but the process forced me to reflect. So what did I see? I see the hand of God and his tender mercy. I have recalled so many wonderful people that have spoken into my life. We need to do this for each other even now. We need to encourage each other. We need to support each other. We need to help them grow, our friends, our pe the people around us in this church. We need to help others grow by sharing what we believe to someone else. I know that the Savior has guided me and protected me, and he's covered me with his sustaining grace. And that's why I want to be part of this. Thank you. I'm not quite so sure this is a brilliant idea. <laughs> but it certainly caused us to reflect. The first 20 years of my life were spent on the campus of what is now known as Briarcrest Christian Academy College and Seminary. You would know it as the number one Bible college in all of Canada. Right, Gary? <laughs> and then somehow we end up in a church with a pastor from Providence. But it's all good. I had wonderful God-fearing parents and a whole community committed to serving and teaching the Word of God. Truly, there is no reason for me not to know the loving and saving grace of God. Yes, I came to know the Lord as a young child on my knees in, the, in my bedroom with both parents by my side. I was baptized in my early teens. Now let's be clear, most of you might know this, but a Bible college campus is not heaven on earth. Not all were there for the right reasons, but most were good people whose desire was to serve the Lord. I loved it there. I loved sports, and athletics was a big part of the school. I loved music, and Briarcrest was an oasis of culture in the middle of the Saskatchewan prairies. I loved the social life, and much of it was within walking distance of my home. 
It is the place where I met the Lord and had many opportunities to grow. And of course, it is the place where I met my wife, who has been with me for more than 50 years. Years later, later, when teaching at Campbell Collegiate in Regina, one of my colleagues seemed to be puzzled that I appeared to be relatively normal. You might have some issues with that. In their mind, growing up on a Bible college campus would be full of rules and narrow theological views. And some of that is true, but it stopped me in my tracks and caused me to reflect, because all in all, for me, it was a great experience. So why? I have to give much credit to my mom and dad. I could ask any question at home. We could debate any idea. My father never told me to ask, not to ask that question. He could have won most of the arguments, but he was not one of those people who had to win the argument. This was huge as I developed my own worldview. Yeah, the rules on the campus were strict and I was subject to those rules, but I had intellectual freedom at home and I am forever grateful. My first job away from home was on a construction crew at the Grand Rapids Generating Station. As, you can as far as I can tell, I was the only Christian on the job <clears throat> and God was not honored there. And as you can probably imagine, it was a bit of a culture shock. So where was God? As I wrestled with that, my mind went back to our living room where my parents often hosted missionaries. As a kid growing up, I would listen to them telling stories of God at work. These were honorable people and their stories about the reality and power were not to be denied. That was helpful. My life's work was with students, teachers and parents in the Regina public school system. The best part of my career was in the classroom, but as they say, I clawed my way up to the middle. <laughs> I am full of appreciation and awe of the trust that society gives to me and my fellow teachers to work with their kids. That is a responsibility that I never took for granted, and being there every day with your children was a privilege. I am grateful to God and to society for the opportunity to have an impact on kids. <clears throat> In 2018, we moved to Winnipeg, where we are close enough to love two sets of grandkids. And of course, we have found a wonderful church home here at White Ridge, where you have made us feel welcome and the teaching of the word has been sound. It has been a great move. I do not have any exciting sins to tell you about, so I am going to tell you what I have learned in my walk with God. That is not to say that I was always close to God, and certainly my friends and family will confirm that I am a sinner. But my spiritual journey has not always been easy as I wrestle with the questions deep in my heart and soul. So here's what I have learned. Number one, we can easily get bogged down in theological dogma. There are many debates between denominations and schools and thoughts. We can get it right or we can get it wrong. But Jesus made it simple in Mark chapter 12, 29 to 31, when he was asked, what is the most important commandment of all? <clears throat> the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment is greater than these. Jesus' words. I love those verses because we can make things so complicated. It doesn't need to be. Two, the core of our faith is not its moral codes, but rather the faith in the person of Christ and a focus on Jesus is both profoundly humbling and profoundly hopeful. Learn who Jesus is, and you immediately recognize that even if you live your life compliant with the most strict codes of conduct, you will inevitably fall short in countless areas of life. A Christ who knows our innermost thoughts also knows that not one single person can be possibly as pure as they present themselves. That's humility. We all, fall, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The hope is found in the same source as the humility. A God who is gracious, who sacrificed himself to atone for our sins. The Christian community must thus be among the most humble and most hopeful in the land. Are we? <laughs> Three. There are things that I find troubling in the Bible. There are things that I don't understand, and there are things that I cannot explain. I think we as Christians need to be honest about that. But I agree with Philip Yancey, who says that there is no more real or honest book than in the Bible, which hides none of its character's flaws. The story of most religions is a man's never-ending efforts to reach up to God. And the story in the Bible is of a loving God who reaches down to man. This is the God who I believe in. And while I don't understand everything, it is my belief in the, Bible, in the God of the Bible that gets me through my day. So at the end of all of this with George Beverly Shea, you might have heard of him, I say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Matthew 1, verse 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child whom has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. As we enter into this Advent season, let us as a church family together behold our Savior. Together let us focus our eyes and hearts on Jesus, for in Jesus we have salvation from sin. In Jesus we have life. Within him dwells all of the fullness of God, and therefore, in Jesus, and because of Jesus, we can truly experience the joy of God with us. In any season, in any circumstance, we will never be without him. This Christmas, let us, t let us together turn our eyes to Jesus and be thankful for this wonderful gift. Thanks, you guys. As we go into the Advent season and, and even through Christmas and Christmas Day, our, our theme uh, that we've chosen for this year is Behold. And every time we gather, we are going to hear scripture that invites us to behold our King, to fix our eyes more closely on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're here doing this morning as well. And I invite you to stand. Let's fix our eyes more closely on our Savior, Jesus Christ.
You are saved from your sin. But even in Christ, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior already, we still struggle with sin, and we still sometimes sin. And when we do, sometimes that can feel like it really weighs on us. It can feel like maybe we're a bit more distant from God than we were. Maybe we're hiding from Him a little bit. Or it can feel that maybe because we've sinned and the regret that we feel, we feel like maybe we're not honoring him as much as we could or we're, or we're not able to honor him as much as we could. But the beautiful thing is this, is that when God convicts us of sin, we are in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. He is not convicting us to condemn us. He's convicting us that we would be invited to bring those things to him, just to confess those things to him that he already knows so that we can experience healing, that we can experience forgiveness, we can experience the joy of restoration. Uh, that is our loving God. And we've been, we've been talking as staff, as pastoral staff recently, about how important it is uh, that confession is a part of our, our daily walk with Christ. How beautiful it is that confession is part of our daily walk with Christ. And because it is, we want to spend a bit of time in lots of our upcoming times together on Sunday mornings, just taking a moment that we might confess our sins to the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you are feeling the weight of something that, uh, that you've done, or maybe you're feeling distant from God today because of something. That isn't how God wants you to be. You don't have to be there. And uh, so right now, I invite you to, to close your eyes and just take a moment. If there is something on your heart, some kind of a regret, some kind of a shame, some kind of a thing that you're carrying around this morning and maybe nobody else knows. Or maybe in this moment, you can ask God to show you if there's anything in any corner of your heart, any place where perhaps 
we haven't loved God like we could, or perhaps we haven't loved somebody like we should, or perhaps our pride got in the way in a situation, or perhaps we just did something completely intentionally against God. Whatever it is, just take this moment to acknowledge before the Lord that it's there. ask for his forgiveness. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you that you've given us Jesus through whom we already have salvation if we have asked to uh, have you forgive our sins. And we thank you that every time that we bring to you something that is uh, in between us and you, it's not scandalous. You're not going to thwart us for it, but you're going to lovingly restore us. And I thank you for how in many hearts just now, perhaps, you did that very thing. And we give you praise. Amen. Paul and Kareen for sharing your testimony this morning. You're so blessed. Uh, we have seen, we've heard the gospel shared with us this morning, but we also saw the gospel or see the gospel incarnate through Paul and Kareen. We thank you for that. Just want to correct one thing that Kareen said. She's going to go like that, you know. She, so we love it when someone gets up here to share the faith story with the church family. And we do require that you do reflection and you tell your story, at least in print, so that we can share it with the congregation. There is the odd time when people are just absolutely unable to get up here. They're petrified. There's other ways of getting the story out. We've recorded it and played it. We've printed it and given it out and so on. So again, uh, but for you two, we had to get you up here. We just uh, <laughs> thank you for that. What's the most important thing about you? A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. <laughs> what do you think came to Jesus' mind when he thinks about God? I think what came to Jesus' mind when he thought about God was Father. He says Father so many times in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's what comes to Jesus' mind when he thinks about God. He thinks about this closeness of Father. This morning we're going to read a couple of passages in a moment, but I want to set up the first reading just a little bit with the background. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it in Psalm 52... The one part that's not on the scripture reading that will come up on the screen is the little preamble that is found in the text of most Bibles. In the ESV, it says this, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And you're going, what? So let me tell you the backstory on Psalm 52 so that when we read it, you will say, oh, 
In Psalm 52, we, tie, we come to a time in David's life when he is running away from King Saul. He has been deposed as king, and King Saul has, or, or, he has not yet become king, and King Saul is king, but he has been told he will be king. And with the help of Saul's son, Jonathan, he has realized that he's going to be killed if he sticks around Saul's house. And so he runs from King Saul, and he's got his little band of followers going from place to place. And at one point, they're just about starved to death, so they go to Shiloh. The tabernacle is in Shiloh. The chief, the head priest there is a guy named Ahimelech. He visits the temple, the tabernacle there, and he asks to have the showbread, which was not normally eaten except by priests, but it's, it's given to David and his men, and also the, the sword of Goliath that David had captured years earlier was in tabernacle, and he took the sword of Goliath. But there was one man there as well. He was called, he was called Doeg, and he was an Edomite. And Edomites were descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau. This war between the two brothers was still continuing. Edomites were Israel's enemy. But Doeg had made himself an ally and a servant of King Saul. And Saul trusted in him to do things that others didn't do. Well, he squeals, he rats on David. He runs to Saul and he tells, that, tells Saul that that Ahimelech has given bread and helped David and his men. Immediately, they are summoned. Eighty-five priests from Shiloh are summoned to Saul, and he tells his men to slaughter them. None of the men of Saul's army want to pull out their sword and kill a priest. But guess who pulls out his sword? Doeg, the Edomite. And he slaughters 85 priests on that mountain. And then one of them escapes in the midst. He runs and he tells David what has happened. Psalm 52 was written right after that. Would you stand with me and let's read Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. God will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. And now in the book of Matthew, the scripture that we are looking at this morning from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So even every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the most important thing about us is what we think of you. Help us now as we think of you in this message to reserve some energy to give ourselves to love you with all our mind today. For we confess, Lord, that we have had such lofty thoughts of ourselves, large and many thoughts about ourselves, but small and few thoughts about you this week. We're prone to that, God. You know our ways. But today, Lord, would you just lift our thoughts of you? And would you remind us of these words of warning that Jesus has given us in the sermon? Lord, that we might enjoy you forever and abide with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've begun our Advent season and um, it's so good to be worshiping Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, in, that, in that little phrase, God with us, is a very important word, the word with. It's, 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 it's among the words that are so small in, and seemingly insignificant in our vocabulary, and yet they change the meaning of every, every sentence we ever speak. I'm talking about prepositions. <laughs> It's going to be an English lesson today. It's, I'm talking about prepositions, things like by and in and for and with and from. These little words alter the meaning of the sentences that we say. Perhaps some of you have heard of the, the Sri Lankan author by the name of Sky Jathani. He's entitled a book called With, and it's reimaging the way you relate to God. And he teaches us to be careful with prepositions as we describe our relationship with God because they reveal our understanding or our misunderstanding of how we should relate to the Almighty. And he uses four common misrepresentations of our relationship to God using four different prepositions. <laughs> he says, for example, that we could live a life under God, over God, from God, or for God. Life under God, in this posture, we relate to God like it's the chain of command. We figure out what God wants, we do it, and we avoid trouble, and that way we earn his favor. Life under God. Then there is life over God. In this approach, faith replaces God with religious formulas. He gives us the principles that we are to live by. We take the principles, we act them out, 
We live according to them, and uh, they determine the outcome. God really isn't needed. We just need his principles, life over God. And then there's life from God. People who take this posture will uh, really thank God not so much for God, but for his blessings. He exists to dispense favors and I'll tell you, a great disillusionment happens to people sometimes when they expect that they've been living according to the rules and God doesn't dispense the favors. And then there's life for God, a common misunderstanding. In this approach, we try to serve God. We see God's mission. We try to do great things for God. He's the master. We're the servant. And we're sent to do his work. It sounds completely normal, except somehow the focus is more on our doing than on God and his glory and his giving. There's a measure of truth in all four of these ways, and ultimately, though, all of them use God as a means to an end instead of the end in itself. Each is rooted in fear. Each is rooted in a desire to control circumstances and outcomes. And what Skyjathani says is the best preposition to use is life with God. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the way to do life. God is not a set of rules. God is not a set of rules or a list of rules, uh, life under God. He has not sent an instruction manual, life over God. He did not send just a magic lamp with a genie to grant all our wishes, life from God. He did not send an envelope with a Mission Impossible tape that makes us heroes, life for God. Instead, he came down personally to live and do life with us. And he wants us to have the understanding that we want to do life with God. And so here's where the rub comes. Because there is something in your heart and in my heart that wants to do life without God. There's something in every one of us that wants to do life without God. I sometimes put my head on the pillow at the end of the day and I ponder how much God has been included and I've done life that day with God. I was reading about Friedrich Nietzsche who declared over 100 years ago that God was dead. The quote actually that says that comes from one of his books uh, that is describing a madman shouting at a crowd. And the actual quote is this from the book. God is dead, I tell you. We have killed him. All of us are murderers. Now, I have not studied Nietzsche, and I am not an expert in this. I don't believe he wrote that line with a personal reference of his own belief system here. He is writing a novel and describing someone who is identifying through observation even some of the God followers of society, and he is saying, we killed God. What is he meaning? He is meaning this. He's not saying that that the, the God of the heavens had died. He is saying that God no longer mattered to the people that say he matters most, that God no longer matters to them in their everyday lives. God is dead because he doesn't matter anymore to so many people. Another author, Ronald Rollheiser, comments on this very Nietzsche statement. He says, God has disappeared, but we still have his calling card. 
We still have a sense of him. God is experienced and related to as a religion or as a church or as a moral philosophy or as a guide for private virtue or as an imperative for justice or as a nostalgia and no more. He is more of a moral and intellectual principle that we live by, not a person, he says. God and religion are given the same status as the royal family, symbolic but hardly important from day to day. (laughs) I think the statement is true for many people. It lines up with an article I read a little while ago that was found in the Atlantic magazine where the writer shared that someone asked him about his religion, this author, And he was about to respond and say that he was an atheist, but he stopped himself, and instead he said this. He said, I used to call myself an atheist, and I still don't believe in God, but the larger truth is that it's been years since I cared one way or the other. And now, he says, I realize that I was an apatheist. I was an apatheist. I was apathetic toward the question. I don't really care about the question of God. I looked it up. It's actually a word, apatheism. The attitude of apathy towards the existence or non-existence of God. Who cares? This is scary. Perhaps for the first time in history, our culture with our luxury of not caring, we have the, the luxury of not caring of God. One writer said it this way, we have done so well in the West, we can just sit at our Starbucks, sit, sip our latte as educated people and philosophize about ideas. You don't really have to deal with questions about things like God, meaning, origins, morality, or destiny. Who cares? If this author is correct, there are many people in the culture that we live in, in very grave danger. Because I think that apathy is harder to combat than rebellion. I would rather talk to someone who has opposition to God, who wants to give God the middle finger, than person who could care less, or couldn't care less, about whether or not he even is. As someone said, Not even God can steer a parked car. And so, as we open up the scriptures this morning and look at the Sermon on the Mount and the closing statements almost, Jesus presents some very, very clear language about what we think of God. And one of the options is not apathy. I mean, tell me you hate God or tell me you love God, but don't tell me he doesn't matter the Almighty. Let's take a look at this scripture in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at three warnings that Jesus has. One is a warning against the easy way, one is a warning against false teachers, and one is a warning against being a false follower of God. First of all, let's look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. In the counterculture that Jesus is leading, 
that is very different than the prevailing culture of Canada that we live in. In the countercultural uh, culture that Jesus is living, he's saying there are two roads that every one of us get to choose from, and really only two. One road has a wide gate. It leads to an easy way. There are many people on it, and it leads to destruction. The other is a narrow gate that leads to a harder way. There are few people on it, and it leads to life. There are just two roads that you can choose from. But the, counter, the culture that we live in does not say that. The prevailing culture does not say there are two ways. One leads to life and the other to destruction. The culture we live in says there are many ways. Many ways. And you get to choose which way. In fact, whatever fulfills you, that's the way you should choose. Whatever makes you happy, whatever road leads to your desired destiny, that's okay. But the Bible and Jesus are very clear in saying that it will end in destruction if it is not life with God. If it is not the way of Jesus, it will end in destruction. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is very clear. Another Sri Lankan author that I'm referring to this morning is named Ajith Fernando. He wrote a book called The Supremacy of Christ many years ago. I heard him speak one, one week at a continuing education at, uh, at a seminary in Vancouver. And he tells the story of a Muslim man who was converted to Christ. And one day, the friends of this former Muslim man asked him why he had converted to Christianity and here's how he responded. He said, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked into two directions and you didn't know which way to go. And there at the fork were two men. One was dead and one was alive. Which one are you going to ask for directions from? You see, Jesus is the living God. And Jesus, in this sermon, is warning against all who have opened the wide gate onto the easy way where many are walking that leads to destruction. And he's warning us. Many of you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, classic bestseller after the Bible. Bunyan makes it very clear in this book, this allegory, that the life of a Christian is not an easy road. The Christian is faced with many struggles. It's either the slew of despond or the diversions of worldly wise men or the slowdown of uphill difficulty or the confrontation of evil Apollyon or the confounding of the valley of the shadow or the, the town of vanity. But he also talks about the plain of ease, the easy way. Be careful of the easy way. And in this in this capacity, Bunyan is emphasizing that the plane of easy represents when life is all easy and well, when there are no troubles, when spiritual warfare seems absolutely unnecessary, peace and contentment abound. Indeed, God grants us refreshment times like that and rest, praise him for it, but there lurks a danger on an easy plane. We forget God. 
We forget that we were meant to do life with Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus warns, enter by the narrow gate. Paul says, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Let's move on to the second point that Jesus makes in this sermon. And that is found in verse 15, warnings about false teachers. These are the people that point others down the wrong road, okay? These are people that are responsible for deceptive philosophies and and ideas that will point people to follow the easy road, the wide gate, where many are following on the way to destruction. And they're often doing it, of course, according to their own deceitful schemes for their own advancement, without the good of God or of others in mind. And if you follow them, these false teachers and prophets, your end will be the same as theirs, destruction. You know, there's no end. There's no end to the fake and phony and false and fictitious and fabricated philosophies, religions, ways. You could be alarmed if you really went down too many wrong roads. You could be alarmed at the many voices that are out there telling you ideas of truth and and, and abundance and so on. And so Jesus, aware of this, because every generation is more alike than different, Jesus, aware of this, says in verse 15 that they come, these false teachers, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So how do we discern a sheep from a ravenous wolf when they both look like sheep? Jesus changes the metaphor, and he says, because here's how you'll identify them. You'll identify them by their fruit. That's what you'll do. In verse 16 and verse 20, you'll notice that in the English language, not usually done, but it's in in the ESV anyway. I'm not sure about other translations, but fruit is multiplied, pluralized, fruits. Now, if I go to the store and I buy grapes and I buy bananas, I don't come home and I don't say to Pat, hey, Pat, I bought some fruits. I say, Pat, I bought fruit. And she'll know that it made it, maybe it was more than just bananas. My favorite fruit. But to emphasize the plurality of fruit, the Bible translated fruits. What does that mean? Well, in other words, there will be more than one way of discerning whether someone is a sheep or a wolf, whether someone is a good teacher or a false teacher. There's more than one way. It takes time to observe whether this is good fruit or bad fruit. Don't quickly hitch your wagon to some teacher, some author, some website, some blog. Be discerning. Examine the fruits of a life, and false teachers will inevitably result in recognition of bad teaching that doesn't line up with the Bible, bad treatment of people who are colleagues, arrogance that has to be at the top of the pile, personal habits that are absolutely ungodly, character qualities that you will see. The beatitudinal posture will not be found of being poor in spirit, mourning their sin, hungering after righteousness, and so on. You'll see it. Be discerning. Examine the fruit. 
Thirdly, there's warnings then in this scripture by Jesus of false, being a false follower. He's, he's warned us about following the easy way with many that are walking on it. He's warned us about the false teachers that point us to the easy way. And now he is warning us about being one of those false followers that listen to the false teachers that follow the easy way. And he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In this scripture, Bonhoeffer is saying, first came the division between the church and the world. That's the two roads. Then came the division within the church. That's the false teachers and the true teachers. And then finally comes on the day of judgment, the final division of the true followers and the false followers. This is some of the most sobering language that Jesus speaks. Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Away from me. Away from me, you worker of lawlessness. See, what Jesus is pointing out here is the hypocrisy that will be exposed on that last day when we all stand before the Lord. He clarifies that professing faith is not the same as possessing faith. There are people in the church that can say the right words and call Jesus Lord. The word kurios in Greek means master. There are people in the church that can say the right words. They can look like Christian but live very self-serving lives, not living to the will of God but against the will of God. So our lives must be accompanied not only by a verbal confession, but a moral confession, an obedience confession of our lives. We can read these words, and if you are like me, you can read these words and feel kind of shaken in your faith. You can feel kind of rocked, like, whoa. You know, if, if, I, I don't know, I, I've never cast out a demon. I've never done mighty works. I've never, you know, have I prophesied in his name and so on? You, think, you can think to yourself, well, if those people aren't going to get in, what, what's become of the rest of us? No, don't think that way. There's three ways of understanding this text. One is that on the day of judgment, there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, and they will claim and say that they cast out demons and that they've done mighty works and that they've prophesied in the name of Jesus. It's just that they're saying it. So one possibility is they're saying it, but isn't it, it isn't actually true. They never actually did it. That's one option. The second option is that they did do these things, and these things were allowed by God. That for the greater good, God used people who personally were not connected to the vine and in relationship with Jesus, and yet God used them to bring others to Christ. And then the final possibility from passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and other passages, it could be that these works 
were done by a dark power of Satan to bring counterfeit signs and wonders and deceive many people, which will happen in the last days according to the scriptures. But the key to understanding verse, uh, this passage is verse 23. The key to understanding the words of Jesus is that Jesus will declare to those who are false followers that he never knew them. Interesting. He never knew them. Jesus has been walking with them as Emmanuel all their lives. He is God with them their entire existence on earth, be it 10 years or 98 years old, but instead they have been so preoccupied with other things. He calls them workers of lawlessness. The words here describe someone who practices living a life contrary to God's ways and God's will. To be technical, it is, it is a present participle in Greek. What does a present participle do? It refers to continuous, ongoing action. This is not someone who, oops, did a blunder. This is not someone that, that strayed from the path and was the prodigal for a few months or years. This is the person who has stayed practicing ungodliness, lawlessness, not interested in following God's ways. If you get off of the righteous path, be careful because on the, off the righteous path, you can't have assurance of salvation. Because off of the righteous path, the Lord God himself, if he's your father, says, I'm going to discipline everyone that I accept as a child, and you're not going to stay on that path long. I'm going to get you back on the path that you and I are going to walk on because it's doing life with you that matters to me. We're going to do Emmanuel life. And so don't be rattled by this passage if you have communion with Jesus. If you know that you're downloading grace into your sin-ridden life every day because you know you are a beatitudinal Christian, you, you start saying, I'm poor in spirit, you grieve that sin. You don't embrace it. You don't tolerate it. And then you hunger after righteousness that is not your own, it's Christ's. Amen? And so, how did we get here? It might be a question you ask. How did, how, did, how did the simplicity, I love the way that Paul was describing the Christian faith meant to be sim, simplistic and clear. And how do we get to make it so complicated? I love what Richard Halverson says. He was the uh, former chaplain to the U.S. Senate. And he writes, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. And then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. And then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. And next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. <laughs> oh, boy, did it drift far away from the first century church. We have a lot of rethinking to do of discipling and discipleship with Christ. What matters is that you have a Father in heaven that loves you, 
What matters is that he knows your name. What matters is that when you stand before on judgment day, that he'll, he'll say, oh, I know you. <laughs> We've walked a long time together. Enter into the joy of my father. You don't want to hear, I never knew you. Jesus never intended to be a philosopher. Jesus never wanted to start an institution. Jesus did not plan on imposing a culture on the unwilling. And Jesus certainly never wanted to start a commercial enterprise. Jesus wanted to invite you into his family. That's what he wants. He wanted to invite you into his family. He wanted you to get to know the Father. And he said to his disciples when he walked the earth, he said, Don't, why are you asking me to show you the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart. And he said, if anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. He wants to be your Emmanuel, your God with you. He wants to do life together. Maybe there's something you could do today. Maybe there's some prayer you would want to just say to God right now before we leave this room that says, here's how I want to change the way I do life with you, God. Here's how I want to change the way we do life together. Let's pray together for that. Would you stand with me? Let's conclude our service with this prayer. And let's make this prayer as personal as you can make it. God reaching down to you with his big hand and you reaching up to yours, him with your small hand and him just saying, let's do life together. I'm going to give you just a moment of silence right now and then I will conclude our service with a word of prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, that you've heard every prayer, every word, thought. This morning, God, we've, we've looked at lots of people in the Bible. We've looked at Doeg, the Edomite, a wicked and vile man. We've looked at the people that are traveling on the wide road that has many that leads to destruction. We've talked about false teachers that are like sheep, but they are really ravenous wolves deceiving others. We've talked about people who perhaps are within churches and within Christendom, and they, they say Lord to you, but you don't know them. In, an, in a relationship in the family. Father, today would you, would you seal whatever it is that your main message to each of us has been, would you seal that with a reminder that 
that we can have absolute peace and assurance that we belong to you because of what Christ you have given at the cross and through the resurrection. That we can have assurance that you are our Father, O God. And we can cry out, Daddy, Papa, Abba, and have absolute security knowing there's no fear in this relationship with you now for perfect love has driven out fear. And Lord, would you remind us that that we can have that kind of relationship. Send us from this place, Lord God, and give us a reminder of the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace. May you have a good day.